we made the decision, look, we couldn't farm anymore. We'd lost, we were totally financially, physically and emotionally exhausted. G'day and welcome back to another week of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and as always, thank you so much for listening to us. We'd love to know where you are listening to us today. So send us a photo on Instagram, click us a message, whatever it might be. Love to see where you're taking us. As always, I'd like to acknowledge the Wadarung people, the traditional custodians on the lands that I meet, and I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional owners on the lands wherever you take our podcast. This week's topic and our focus for the month of Feb is around good health and well-being, and it can go in all different ways, but I've been chatting to this fella for a couple of years. Today's conversation talks about mental health, depression, uh, and Warren ultimately losing his farm and the challenges that came with that. So I just want to put it up front. There are aspects in this conversation which may be triggering. If you need help, please reach out to Lifeline, TX. We've got those numbers in our show notes. Uh, but I think Warren's journey is a really interesting one and um, on so many levels people can relate to. So let's just jump straight into it. Warren Davies is known as the Unbreakable Farmer. Born and bred in Melbourne, it was in 1982 when Warren's dad pursued a lifelong dream of becoming a farmer. After suffering from bullying through secondary school, it was the perfect move for Warren to start afresh and meet new people in his community. After a career in farm management, Today, Warren focuses on sharing his story to help others learn from his experiences and overcoming adversity. Warren, it's great to have you on the Humans of Ag podcast, mate. Yeah, well, mate, this is um, this is quite an honour. I've been uh, following your work for a long time, so um, yeah, for you to reach out and get me on, I'm pretty chuffed about that. So thank you. I think we've probably been communicating. God, it feels like a couple of years now, and so I'm I'm excited because I feel like we really wanted to shift and I guess start to focus on some themes and and this episode is actually going to be the first one around good health and well-being and I think for us good health starts with people but then it also goes through to animals the environment and various areas of ag but I think yeah it's a, it's exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more of your story but firstly mate how how are you and how have you been? Yeah no mate it's um I'm pretty good so it's been um a little bit of a hectic um couple of months um we spoke off air the other day about what I've been up to and you know when COVID hit as a professional speaker it was um kind of something that um come to a grinding halt pretty quick so I uh, wasn't been out wasn't able to travel and and do all that so um I was lucky enough to fall back on my agricultural skills and not not particularly endearing but I went back there was a, a local um, tomato processor that was looking for workers so I uh, went back and yeah been driving tractors for the last few years in amongst doing speaking gigs when I've been able to uh, when when you know restrictions haven't um, held that up or whatever and um, yeah so it's been pretty hectic. Tell me is that your first foray into tomato farming? Yeah um, it is uh, I really can see some real parallels um, between dairy farming and any sort of crop really because you know basically you uh, you're looking after them and you're nurturing them and you're trying to get as much um, production out of them as you possibly can. It's also, it's really mixed cropping. So with tomatoes, we 
you know, they're only part of the crop because obviously um, every year you've got to rotate and you can't have tomatoes in the ground in the same spot every year. So, you know, we grow, um, you know, we had 400 hectares of corn in last year and um, probably the same as of wheat as well, a um, couple hundred hectares of tomatoes. So it's busy. There's always something to do. So quite I quite enjoy it but yeah I've, I've done posts about this before like without agriculture the last three years would have been a complete disaster for me and I would have had to have given up that dream of the unbreakable farmer and you know sharing my story and hopefully having impact in communities but um you know being able to lean on agriculture again and and um you know use my skills in a little bit different way but um you know <laughs> They always say, well, I think it's 180 skills that a dairy farmer have got. I've always thought that I had um, plenty of skills, but I wasn't a master of any of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, being able to weld and and fix stuff and and have that logical mind mindset that, you know, you can work through that problem-solving problem mindset, I suppose, is, you know, has been really good to lean back on, you know, so... Um, but yeah, look, still looking forward to getting back out on the road and and following what my my now my passion and and my purpose is, and that's yeah, sharing my story. Well, I'm excited to delve into it a little bit, Dave. Tell me, you you grew up actually in Melbourne, spent a fair chunk of your childhood. Had you been exposed to ag, or like when did agriculture kind of come into your life, Warren? Probably as a three-year-old, mate. Um, mum mum's uncle was a dairy farmer at Tregal up near Karain. Um, and we used to spend a little bit of time up there and um, you've got this photo where I'm sitting on the motorbike and I reckon that's where the seed was planted and I always thought farming was about tractors, motorbikes and slug guns mate so it was that's what <laughs> yeah, pretty, I always thought. Pretty similar to my first interactions too I think. That's what I always thought and then and then we had friends that were down at Trafalgar in Gippsland and you know obviously been a little bit closer to Melbourne we used to spend a fair bit of time down there and that's where I fell in love with I suppose with with dairy farming but once again it was more around those you know the motorbike riding and and going around with the slug gun with with um me, uh, a mate or the the son of the family that we used to visit and he's a mate of mine and and we used to get up to all sorts of mischief and i suppose growing up in a you know outer eastern suburb of melbourne that freedom of being on the farm was always exciting and you do you know something that you couldn't do in melbourne is ride around a motorbike you know wherever you wanted to and all that sort of stuff so um, that was probably where i was introduced to to agriculture um or as to dairy farming in particular which um yeah wouldn't have thought as that you know growing up in melbourne as that kid that that's would be the career path that i ended up following and because as a secondary student in high school, you moved out, your old man had this dream of being a farmer. Do you think, or did he potentially have romanticized views similar to, I think what you've, you've touched on there, the motorbikes chasing things around just the wide open spaces and having fun. Cause that was certainly, I guess, my initial attraction into ag as well. Did, was that your old man's, I guess, piece oh. as well? Yeah, I reckon it would. Like he grew up in South Yarra in Melbourne, mate. Like he was like he was you can't get much more in the suburbs than that. And he was a butcher by trade. And um I think it was that romantic dream that that's what it was. And um, you know, the the freedom and you know, he's always been it was always like 
he did his trade at the South at South Melbourne market and then worked at the big market as a butcher, had his own shops and that in Melbourne. So he always and so once he'd done his apprenticeship and then moved on, he always had his own businesses. And mum and dad were small business owners in Melbourne. They we either had milk bars, butcher shops, had a post office for five years up in Cockatoo, up in the Dandenong. So we we moved around a fair bit and so they always had their own business. So I think he always, you know, wanted that. And then, you know, that romantic vision in his head of being a farmer as well as a small business owner was, you know, something that he could couple together. But I can still remember the look on mum's face particularly because we moved on Cup Day of in 1982 in the middle of the drought so Golden Valley had never experienced a drought at that stage like it was and we'd moved from you know nice brick veneer home in Furniture Gully in Melbourne with the nice concrete driveway to this friggin dust bowl of a joint into an old weatherboard house and all that sort of stuff but for me I like I was like a proverbial pig in in it mate because I like I just thought this is fantastic moving to the country it was like something that you know, I'm now, I was going to be now a country boy and we'll touch on that part of my story, like, you know, leave all that stuff that was happening on in Melbourne and move to the country. And, you know, I was really looking forward to, you know, reinventing myself, I suppose. What was happening in Melbourne? Look, I'd, I'd been, because we moved around a fair bit as um, with mum and dad being small business owners, like we always lived at the back of a milk bar, like, um, you know, plenty of good stories of catching petty thieves stuck over the trying to climb through the barred windows above the door you know with alarms going off in the middle of the night and all that sort of stuff we so we always grew up and so every business that they had we moved on type of thing and something that I've realized and it it was a realization when I did a speaker course before um, I did it become this speaker and that's unpacking my story I learned a lot about myself and one of the things that was um there's two things that I never really had an attachment to a community and I was always a new kid on the block but I, I'd realized that I'd been struggling with my mental health for for a long time um even though I really didn't acknowledge it or did anything about it I just accepted that that's how life was um but as this kid moving around, I was always that new kid on the block. And, you know, even at, at primary school, my first day in grade three was fairly traumatic. Like uh, I realised when I unpacked my story that I struggled with it, um, with, um, you know, anxiety and low self-esteem for a long time. And so in that, even that grade three day, I remember the, the teacher dragged me up the front and, you know, I'm self-professed. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. When she asked me to do a math sum on the on the blackboard up the front, you know, straight off the bat, first lesson, you know, instead of introducing me, she goes, new kid, come up the front and do this. So it was kind of very daunting. And I can remember even then, and it's something that uh, when I share this, like I'm still even sitting here now, like the hairs on the back of my neck are starting, <laughs> starting to bristle a little bit because I can, I had a major impact on me. The You know, the kids laughing and I didn't fit in because they thought I was the dumb new kid. Um, and as I progressed at that primary school, it was the longest I stayed anywhere. So grade three to grade six. By the time I got to grade six, I was, you know, I'd become a little bit of a leader at that school. I'd created a bit of a friendship group, you know, I was Blue House captain and the bell monitor and all those cool things that, you know, the cool kids do. Well, not really the dorky kids do them things, but that was, I thought they were cool. Everyone was so, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd climbed that tree and I, I'd established myself there, but in mum and dad's wisdom, when they sent me to 
to secondary school, they sent me to a, a private boys' school, a Catholic boys' school in the same suburb, like in Furniture Gully, where, where we were, where we were based. But out of the 180 kids I was at school with in grade six, boys and girls, I was the only one that went to that school. So once again, I was back to square one. I was at the bottom of the tree. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you'd see me in real life, I'm about six foot three. And I was that tall when I was in year seven, walked into a school with a thousand boys that day. We all looked the same. We all had our blue blazers and our ties and our gray pants, but I was the new kid because they were all in their friendship groups that, you know, the St. Pat's and the St. John's and the, you know, St. Paul's kids that are all going to primary school together at certain schools. They were there in their groups and here I am walking by myself. And, and it really started that day. It was real, um, you know, I was the easy target, I suppose. Dorky big kid and new kid on the block. So no one knew me. So they headed, um, so they targeted me and it was just like verbal bullying at the start. But by the end of it, you know, by the time I left that school, it was becoming quite physical. Um, and it had a major effect on my well-being, like um, my self-esteem particularly, but my anxiety as well. But that underlying theme to my story is I didn't do anything about it, didn't reach out, and, you know, because I thought, you know, keep your mouth shut and just suck it up, basically. But it also had a major impact on my education. Year seven, I was a straight-A student. I didn't mind school, really. But by the time I left that school, I hated school and I was failing school. So to move to the country was fantastic. Um, you know, I always share, like, at that school, my way of fighting back at that school was to make the footy team because I'm an AFL nut. And to make that footy team would, you know, kind of lifted your profile or helped you climb that tree. And I tried and tried over those three years and never made that footy team, um, which is a real kick in the backside as well, because I just love my footy. But, you know, I was up against some stiff opposition because there was, you know, there's only 22 spots in that team and a, a fair few of those fellas went on to play AFL footy. And um, even one of the blokes still is a coach in the AFL system today. So, you know, I was pushing a fairly full wheelbarrow up a steep hill to try and make that team. But it was, for me, that was like another um, point, another failure point, I suppose. And I was failing at school. So that was, you know, disappointing. So moving moving to the country was a way that I could, like when mum and dad said, well, this is what we're doing. My sister was devastated because she was a suburban socialite where I was more of a an introvert, which I still probably am, which is probably hard to believe considering that I'm, you know, public speaker but I am an introvert so you know she was devastated but I thought this is great I'm really gonna you know revel in this and even if it's just milking the cows or doing you know riding around on my motorbike or whatever getting a slug gun and you know <laughs> doing what you do um what you did back in those those days yeah so it was something that I, I embraced and you know so when we did move I was pretty happy and but you know, as I said mum wasn't <laughs> it's a real yeah the, the house wasn't you know kind of that that suburban house in Ventry Gully and it wasn't and it was as I said it was in the middle of a drought so it was pretty hot and dusty as well. So what age were you when you guys moved out there? So I was about 15 so I was at the end, end of year nine it was it was about eight weeks of the school year left um, when we moved. So I was failing great, you know, 
you know, when I say failing, like if I brought home an E on me record, I think mum and dad would have taken me to Macca's for a Happy Meal. Like I was really failing at school. I was doing a good job of not being good at school. And, you know, it wasn't as if I was playing up at school. I was just I'd lost, you know, it had basically been beaten out of me that I, my love of school. But arriving in Kyabram at the high school that first day, you know, that's my aim was to, you know, head down bum up and pass year nine because I still had I'd harbored this dream even though moving to the country see I grew up in like Ferntree Gully Cockatoo at the foot of the Dandenongs or in the Dandenongs and my dream job was to be a park ranger what I wanted to do but obviously my education was spiraling out of control downwards and that really wasn't going to be or in my mind um you know these days there's so many pathways to be able to move forward even regardless i didn't see those pathways so um you know struggling at school still even once we got to kyabram but i had this dream of you know passing year nine or you know thought i could do that and then you see where school took me from there but yeah it wasn't too long into into the next year, even though I failed year nine. They put me up to year 10, but it wasn't too long to that year until the principal called mum and dad into the office and said, look, got to find something for this kid to do because school's not for him. And, 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 you know, everything was falling into place as in moving to the country. Like, a, you know, I started playing senior footy. You know, someone actually recognised I could play footy. That was, you know great and then we went I won a premiership not long after that and you know great group of mates I found a girlfriend never had a girlfriend before in my life all these things were fantastic you know life was good um but school was still my sticking point so yeah had to find a career I suppose and agriculture was where I headed because not because it was easy and I really hate saying like you know i just left school and become a farmhand because it just sounds like it really downplays agriculture um you know or a, a job on a farm as if you know any old chick kicker can get a job on a farm it's not it's um it was i went into that because you know obviously let go of that dream of being a part Granger, um, so i wanted to be a farmer i wanted to be good at what i did and and luckily enough i got a job with one of the best farmers in the district. So it was um it was a win-win for me. And yeah, he promised to he promised to teach me everything I needed to know about farming um, when he put me on and he certainly did that. I'm curious about the the impact of having others and that vote of kind of confidence of them in you to actually see what you're good at. Is it is it something which has played on you and and continues today that like I guess needing that external gratification from others it's not with this with the with the speaking stuff it's not I've kind of let go of that that's it's been a really people ask me this all the time but it's been a real cathartic experience being a speaker if I had had the mindset I've got now when I was playing footy I would have played AFL footy (laughs) myself on the back there but (laughs) you know like because I was always looking for, oh, you've done well or whatever in school. So it was something, I think that was really coupled with my self-esteem. Like it was always, you know, wanting to be told that I was doing a good job or whatever. And really it doesn't matter now. Like I don't care. I do. Don't. That's not the right words. I do care greatly. 
But, you know, I don't need someone to come up and tell me and tell me I'm doing a great job or I don't need a thousand likes on a Facebook post or something to say, well, that was worth, you know, that was value because I know definitely at the moment, like regardless, if there's one person out there that reads that post or listens to me speak and, and can use any of that information, then I'm happy. And so I don't need any gratification now, but back then as a kid, it was something that I probably did crave and and I wasn't getting it. And, um, you know, and it was something then that, that probably manifested a little bit. And it, it took a lot of work, uh, self-development work to get over that. Um, yeah, but as a, once I become my own boss and, and stuff like that, it's not something I ever searched for because, you know, I kind of went on a different tangent to a lot of people um, like particularly in our road and I was always I knew the eyes of the world were watching what I was doing compared to my neighbours and I didn't care as long as I was happy with what I was doing and I was kicking the ticking the you know the targets that I'd set myself then I was happy and that's rolled on now into the speaking as well on the piece of working for yourself so you had achieved getting and owning your own farm about the age of 22 I think it was and yeah tell me on that was it was it everything that you were like, so many people have this dream of owning their own farm. Like, was it everything you aspired to? Or what was the moment like? Was it euphoric when you actually achieved that? It was, but it's probably fairly naive as well because, you know, being a non-generational farmer, I looked at all my mates at that stage. We're all, a lot of them were generational farmers and, you know, you just left school and you went back on the farm and life looked good. You know, they'll, buying new tractors and they were doing a bit of contracting and all that sort of stuff. And it all looked rosy. And, and once I, so that our, our pathway into farming, like I got to a stage where naively as that 22 year old, I thought my boss had taught me everything I needed to know. So I started searching for what was my pathway. And I looked at share farming and, you know, our friends in Gippsland um, had had some fairly, negative experiences with share farming so it was something that I really didn't want to go down I looked at leasing there wasn't too much to lease but opportunistically a couple hundred acres had come up for sale next door to mum and dad's that were just was just perfectly positioned to be able to put a bridge over an irrigation channel and turn it into a farm you know into a family business and so I was I was a little bit apprehensive about that because I really wanted to do it by myself but you know that was a way in um and i thought i had all the skills i needed you know and, you know, and i always any of the farms i've managed since i always tell anyone that was worked under me which i hate that word too but you know worked as a like in part of my team i've always told them if they're not learning something today check your pulse because you you're probably not breathing because it's something that you need to you're always learning so at 22 thinking you know everything so you know, on one hand, it was, wow, well, you know, I'm free, basically, <laughs> very naively, I'm free. But, um, you know, I, I went into business with mum and dad, and that was, you know, anyone that's listening that's in a family business know that that can be fraught with danger. Went into business with the bank because they lent me money, and then and went into business with my silent business partner who's mother nature and I didn't really give her enough respect. And so she taught me a few lessons along the way, fairly um, savage lessons and, and some lessons that 
affected the rest of my life. So going into that business, it was great. And look, it was. Um, but going into it, you know, we had to do the hard yard. So, you know, we weren't milking enough cows to support two families. So I used to do off farm work in the summertime, used to cart hay and, and do all that sort of stuff or work at the cannery and do night shift and do some crazy, you know, stuff like that, like work a night shift and then work most of the day on the farm and then, you know, just to make my dream happen. And, and I think that's, you know, that's how it becomes so all-consuming. You know, to be able to establish yourself in agriculture, and it's even harder these days, you've really got to bust your bust your ass to get there. And um, yeah, and you and you do some stupid things, and we still do some stuff. Like I've got a couple of kids that live in Melbourne, and we still do stuff just to fit things in, like we'll knock off at five o'clock or whatever and drive to Melbourne just to go and see the kids and be home by two o'clock to be at work again next morning. Like, But that's what we did as farmers so we could have the best of all worlds but still be, you know, pursuing this dream of farm ownership and and building a business that we could be proud of and, you know, with the long-sided dream of, you know, maybe having a manager on and, and being able to branch out into other stuff as well. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I'm really interested. I've never heard anyone talk about the silent business partner of Mother Nature. That's Super interesting. I, I want to jump into that because for you, that that decline, as you talk about, as a 22-year-old thinking in, you've got it sorted, this is your thing, and then obviously working incredibly hard as well just to actually um, keep things afloat. When did you start to notice that things were starting to, to fray? And I guess, can you talk us through a little bit of like, what was that like? What was the first things that you started to notice as part of that? Yeah, well, as I said, moving to the country was a great thing. So all those things, you know, leaving school, getting a job, you know, playing footy, girlfriend, all that sort of stuff were all positive things. So all that stuff that happened as a kid, I'd kind of swept under the carpet a little bit. And that's, I always reiterate that, that's the underlying theme of my story and that's hopefully what people, one of the points that people get out of it is, and I did nothing about it. So it, it was all push to the background and it wasn't until like so we you know we started to build our herd um you know I was lucky enough that that boss like it was pre-superannuation time so that boss that I worked for for six years said to me um you know when he thought that you know I might leave he and he said look we're going to rear 100 heifers this year um we'll lease a block you've got to look after the block do all the work um but at the end of the day 35 of those heifers are going to be yours. And that was, you know, fantastic. So when I left that job on that farm and bought our farm, I had 35 
Frisian heifers, which you know was a good start. Um, Mum and dad only had a small herd, but so we only had those small herds. So as I said, building up numbers. So we were we were building up the numbers, and you know, a couple of years into into this business venture with mum and dad, things were going really well. And uh, come as October the fourth, I know the date exactly, and we ended up um, getting flooded. Um, it was not a, a whole of our area kind of flood. It was similar to the floods that we've had this year. Um, and we got impacted by that um, similar scenario. Rivers were full, got a you know five inches of rain and all of a sudden we were flooded. But it was just our farm. Um, our neighbours were pretty well untouched, you know, wet, but untouched. But we were fence line to fence line underwater. And um, I always say that's, that's what I call what triggered my what I now call my mental health journey it was you know the stress of that event all that stuff that had repressed or you know put into a into a box and said that's you know childhood stuff all of a sudden was in my face and it started like a little the uh, best way to describe it it's like was like a cloud above my head but the thing is is that i the word, and I, I say this as well in some of my talks, and I've been pulled up by psychologists in the audience once, but failure is something that's dogged me, like, so failing at school, failing, you know, that growing up stuff. I didn't want to fail as a farmer. So my focus was all about recovering from that flood event and moving a business forward and paid little attention to that cloud that had developed above my head. And, you know, so just focused on the business side of it and not the personal side and just kept going. And, and that was okay. We recovered from the flood event. Everything got back to normal. Business kept growing. Um, you know, herd started growing, you know, number-wise and that. And, you know, we're starting to get into a really good spot. Um, but as I said before, you know, I always knew the eyes of the neighbourhood were on me because I kind of pushed the envelope a little bit um, in the way, you know, I didn't have a huge farm. Um, I had, you know, a few years to catch up on all my, you know, my mates have had three generations behind them and I, here I am trying to start. So I was trying to quicken the process a little bit, which was right or wrong, but I always loved the idea of being able to get, you know, maximum production out of what you were doing. So that's what I did. I pushed the envelope. So that idea kind of didn't sit well with mum and dad. And their vision was, you know, more of that lifestyle thing. But we were now moving into that era of dairy farming where lifestyle really, it's there, but it's not there. And it's more business. And so, and that they were kind of struggling with that. And then that started a relationship breakdown with mum and dad. And which just kept deteriorating because my vision of the farm there is when we're going in two different directions. And that, and that, um, yeah, come to a head and it was starting to get fairly ugly and it was having a major effect on me because family is my number one value. And once my family, well, particularly with mum and dad, and I've only got one sister and sister, so that all started to fall apart. I had to do something about it but um, to try and resolve that. But it, it was having this effect and that, that cloud then then started to turn into a spiral, more of a, you know, a downward spiral instead of just a cloud. Um, but once again, I was in that mode of I had to recover from, you know, this family bust up. How do I do that? And I ended up buying mum and dad out of the farm or my wife and I did, which was 
not where I wanted to be. Like I didn't want it to be like that. I, I, my then vision was, you know, I'd buy the neighbours out. You know, we'd build a rotary dairy. We'll just get bigger and bigger. Not, I'd have to buy them out, which which put a lot of stress on us financially because you know we had to buy them out. We really wasn't at that stage in our business. There was no succession planning, so it's very interesting now. When I do speaking gigs, I, a lot of the time, especially um, like in rural farming communities, there'll be a succession speaker, succession planning speaker, coupled with me. Um, so we didn't really have a succession plan. So we had to work out how we're going to do that. Um, one, I wanted to resolve this issue. So buying them out will get them off the farm. So I did that. We bought, we took on a lot of debt, but we're on our own. So we could make, we were calling the shots. So I sat down with all our advisors and worked out a 10 year plan of where I was going to go. We, you know, you know, this is how we can pay off debt, you know, get a new dairy, um, you know, maybe buy some extra land and all that sort of stuff. And, and the plan was pretty robust, but about two years into that 10-year plan. Uh, but the, the, I suppose going back, my mental health was still declining, you know, not, not that I realised it because I was so focused on achieving these goals. And then two years into that 10-year plan, you know, Mother Nature come along again and she sent the drought. And that was a real, you know, something that you can't, you can plan for, but you just... Yeah you don't know when it's going to end. So you don't know how robust that plan's going to be. And, and ours was like the first year, everything was good. Being in our irrigation farmers, we still had water and all that sort of stuff. Feed was still cheap, but moving into the second year, water was a lot tighter and feed was getting dearer. And obviously it hadn't rained <laughs> for a long time. So it was getting pretty dry and, and you know, stressful. Um, moving into the third year, uh, it was yeah, getting really tough. Like we only had 15% of our water right, I think, at that stage. And, you know, hay was hard to get. And one of the things, that word failure started to sneak in. And in that time, the whole stress of the drought was really having an impact on my mental health. And and also, you know, my vision of being a farmer was I'm meant to be a steward to my animals and a steward to my land. And if I could do those two things really well, then I could look after my family and moving into that third year of the drought, that was really having a major impact on all of that because I couldn't do my job properly. And I, and that word failure started to creep in. And then I started to feel a lot of shame and guilt because here I had basically kicked mum and dad off the farm. And here I am, I'm only two years into, into it and I'm failing. And I, I didn't really look at mother nature as the, the cause of this, it was more me and I was pretty hard on myself. Um, pretty, you know, I've got, you know, you know, my internal talk and my self-talk and, and that was pretty brutal on myself because I thought I was failing it. And really now in hindsight, there's nothing I can do. But I just kept working harder and harder trying to beat that and eventually got to a stage where I was in really dark places. Like, and my mental health had declined that much. And, you know, and I was really... Uh, losing grip of our farm I could feel it slipping through my fingers and it was having that was having a big impact on me tell me about actually them walking away so that was yeah real tough time and just before we ended up making that decision of leaving you know I'd hit rock bottom 
my mental health was totally out of control. Wasn't seeking enough help about it. Um, and, you know, with drought, it kind of really isolated me. So I was, I suppose, doubly isolated because my mental health had really declined that much where I'd stop going to family events and stop doing all the things in the community that I love doing. Like I was on kinder committees and school councils and, you know, I was kid coordinator at the footy club and all that sort of stuff and stopped doing that because I declined that much. My my well-being had declined and my mental health had declined that much where I didn't think I was ever any value. So, you know, just isolated myself on the farm, which wasn't a good place to be at that stage because, you know, the drought was really taking a toll on our animals and, and the farm in general. Um, so hitting that rock bottom really wasn't the catalyst to leaving the farm, but when I got to that darkest of darkest places, I just, you know, life gave me two choices. I either could continue in this spiral out of control and, you know, be bitter and twisted at the world for what it had thrown at me, or I could try and get better. And I, I set on that plan and, you know, still, <clears throat> as I said, only a few years into our 10 year plan, still knew and was confident in my skills. It's really weird because you're that, I was that depressed and in that, and that low, my, my mindset was in such a low place, but I still had confidence in my own skills. It's a real weird thing to, real conflicting thing to be. But um, so life had given me, you know, those two choices. But about two months after this, you know, the lowest of low, um, we made a decision, look, we couldn't farm anymore. We'd lost, we were totally financially, physically and emotionally exhausted. And we had four, four young kids. And we just found out that we had a fifth one coming. So, yeah, had to, you know, make decisions, family decisions, I suppose, to try and see where we could end up. And I've been offered a job managing a, uh, a farm down in South Australia. And a bit like when we went onto the farm, that was pretty romantic because something that I aspired to is having a big herd. So here I could go and manage this herd and have every second weekend off. Like, I think this is fantastic. Like, this is really the dream job get the cake and <laughs> so, eat it that's it so we packed up and, and we moved and, and walked off the farm but i never realized the impact that that would have and it was symbolically as the furniture man drove over the bridge and i shut the front gate on the farm because we couldn't sell the farm at that stage we'd sold our cows i um symbolically unclipped my identity off myself and hooked it on the front gate because that's who i believed i was i was warren the farmer and now i'd, I'd failed at that and you know, I was in a pretty shitty spot, even though we'd made all these decisions. And in hindsight, yeah, we probably should have stayed hung on and you know, maybe just shut the farm down and restarted it years down the track. But we were getting advice and we went with the best decision that we thought was right at the time. On that, so you're getting advice on the farming side. Had you had you sought that for your, from your personal side at that stage? I had gone and sought like... <clears throat> As in business wise, I was getting all the advice that I needed, yeah. accountants, solicitors, and all that. But on the personal side, I actually had gone to see the doctor, and um, I always say I was tarred with the brush twice. I'm a bloke and I'm a farmer. So when I went and got that, like sought that help, really didn't treat it seriously enough because I was still hell bent on keeping things day to day going. So. 
you know, when I went to the doctors, I typically <clears throat> tried to fit it into the schedule of the day. It was a one o'clock appointment or whatever. Went there, doctor put me on a mental health plan, which is all fairly, all very confronting. But I just went with it because, you know, I, I promised myself that I was going to get better. And the doctor then said, like, on the mental health plan, you're going to go and see a psychologist and here's some antidepressants. Well, I got home about three o'clock. Well, it was milking time. So the antidepressants went on the fridge and I went and milked and come home, had tea, went to bed, got up the next morning. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, those antidepressants were still sitting on the fridge and I'd never touched them because, like, I was still able to do what I was doing. I was, like I always explain, it's like being a high-functioning alcoholic. I could still function on that high level and manage my farm, but at the same time, the rest of me was falling apart. So I didn't really treat it seriously enough and had a bad experience the first off when I went to see this psychologist because they summed up. They said, look, we know what's, what's your problem. And I thought, bloody hell, that's, that's a fairly good, you know, 10-minute conversation and you know what's wrong with me. And they go, it's financial stress. And I thought... Yeah, well, that, that didn't take a university degree to work that out. You know, I'm in the middle of a drought. So it wasn't a really good experience. And it actually took me six times, six goes at trying to find a psychologist that had actually helped me navigate my journey. Because that first one, like then she sent me, and this is no disrespect to the Salvos, sent me to the Salvos to try and help me with all the financial difficulties. And they, they gave me two vouchers, which total value was 500 bucks. Well, the day before I went for that appointment, I just got a load of grain. It cost me 15 and a half grand. So 500 bucks worth of vouchers. I wasn't really going to alleviate my financial stress either. So it was a combination of things. Don't get me wrong. Financial stress was part of it. But I got to myself to that stage. So really didn't treat it seriously enough. Um, that's one of the things I share now. Like, I always pretty honest and say, like, most of the stuff I talk about are all this, is all the stuff that I did terribly badly but hopefully someone can learn from the lessons that I, I you know really don't want anyone to get to that darkest place and and be so um isolated and so scared and frightened and all those things that come with being at that that lowest of lows um i, I really you know strive and hope that you know, anyone that takes anything, you know, resonates with any part of my story can take things away. So they go and seek help because it's really important that we do and we and really important that we talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm interested um in in your opinion. I guess you talk about it so much and you have different experiences with different people. But as a as I think you mentioned before in terms of you were tarred with the brush twice, you're a bloke and you're a farmer. So in terms of actually seeking help and whatnot, you, you feel like, I guess, psychologically already disadvantaged, but in, in terms of the epidemic that is mental health in rural Australia, particularly with blokes, uh, like how do we, like in your opinion, how do we shift the challenge that is mental health and ill health as part of that? I think it's just trying to normalise the conversation is is one thing, but probably education's another thing and, and also educating the community. You know, and I don't pigeonhole myself just particularly as a men's mental health speaker. I'm more about community, um, you know, community well-being and resilience and all that sort of stuff as well. But, you know, as a, as a bloke and I get to talk to lots of these, these fellas, 
um, around the country, I think blokes do talk. And I think it's about, you know, my mission that I'm on is about creating awareness and education around mental health and wellbeing, inspiring conversations and empowering people to seek help in a safe environment, free from stigma. That's my mission. So I think part of that education piece is about educating people about the subtle things to pick up on because blokes do talk in their own way. They, you know, if they're struggling and that might come out, whether it's anger or frustration or, um, you know, drink too much or whatever it is. And they're all alarm bells for the people around them to say, well, you know, or even a simple thing like at a footy club where, you know, one of the blokes always is on time and then turns up late all the time or doesn't turn up at all. Like they're all alarm bells that even though they might be nothing, and they've just had a bad day and, you know, things have gone wrong and they haven't got to where they need to be. But they're all things that we need to be aware of. And if it happens more than once, then you go, well, maybe I should have that conversation with that guy and, and have the courage to be able to have that conversation. I think that comes from that education and awareness piece. So creating that awareness, even though there's lots of awareness and all that, I think that's the important message to take from the awareness part is, you know, it's to educate yourself so you know what to look for and and then have the confidence enough then to have a conversation with someone who you think might be struggling. But for blokes that are struggling themselves, just to know that, you know, I think by sharing my story, when I say inspiring conversations, I, I hope I hope by sharing my story that empowers other people to share theirs. And and I know myself from personal experience that the conversations I have with blokes now, after, after a presentation or a talk or a community event or, you know, online or on the phone, you know, weeks after, I know that it does empower people then to share their own story. And, you know, I had a perfect example where, and I thought we, talked, we talked about some of my upcoming speaking gigs. One of the conferences that I'm speaking at in, in March, I spoke at in 2019. And... Um, I was a plenary speaker at that conference and I, and the funny part about it is the Batuta Advocate boys were on after me. So you can imagine the crowd of 800 who just go, I wish this bloke could get off the stage. We want them fellas on stage. Like, and I always say to people when I get up on stage, look, some of the stuff I'm talking about, it's, I'm not going to dance around it. It's warts and all. And if you feel uncomfortable, you feel free to leave the room. If you don't want to leave the room, um, if, you, if you want to leave the room, you know, and you're struggling, you know, give me a thumbs down. But if you're just going outside to grab a coffee or whatever, give me a thumbs up. So I just know. And if you give me a thumbs down, I'll make sure someone supports you. Well, as a plenary speaker, I had 35 minutes, but the MC forgot to say 10 minutes to go and just went five. And I've gone off on some bloody tangent talking. So I started to panic. So I wanted to get my messages out. Got them off, got off the stage and I thought, Biggest opportunity I've ever had. There's 800 people in the room and I've just blown it. Walked to the back of the room, a bit sulky and stood there. Next minute, a girl come up in front of me and she had tears in her eyes and she goes, I want to know. I've got a boyfriend in central Queensland. We've just broken up and he's got guns. What do I do? So I just said, look, I'd be, you know, can you still talk to him? She said, yes. I said, well, just talk to him and make sure he's okay and, you know, make sure people around him are aware, you know, just went through all that stuff. And then the next bloke behind was, he was about six foot six, middle 70s, this guy, and he was a cotton grower. And 
he came up to me and he called me all the names under the sun. Start with the F and the C and everything. And I'm going, bloody hell, I've really stuffed this up. And he goes, no, your talk was good. He goes, but how the hell was I meant to stand up in front of 800 people and give you a thumbs down and walk out of the room? Because I'm the best bloody cotton grower in my district. If I did that, everyone would think I'm a weak bastard. And I said to him, I said, well, look, mate, I think you've missed the whole you know, whole idea of my talk. He said, that's okay to be like that. And anyway, I noticed that he'd been sitting with a couple of blokes and I said to him, who are those blokes? He goes, they're me, you know, we've grown up together, they're my best mates and my neighbours. I said, do they know what you told me? And he said, no. And I said, well, go and grab a beer and go and tell them what you've just told me. Well, they come to me about half an hour later and said, we had no idea that he'd been struggling for 20 years. Ironically, one of the neighbours, one of his best mates, had also been struggling for the same amount of time, but they'd never talked about it. And that's one of the things I talk about. One of the powerful things about community, um, well, the most powerful thing about community is shared wisdom. I wish I hadn't met George when I was a young bloke and he had shared his story with me because it might have been able to, it would have been something in his story that would have helped me navigate my journey. So that's where I think it's really important um, that sharing stories and, and the power of storytelling, particularly around mental health and particularly with blokes like, you know, blokes won't turn up to an event where they know there's a mental health speaker and he's just going to stand up the front and go like this. So I try and make it a little bit more conversational. I love getting to events before I need to be there. So I get to meet a few of the people and, and you get a feel for what's going on. But it's about breaking down those barriers just to so blokes will talk. But having said that, blokes do talk, but it's, and it's also educating ourselves around well, what are the signs that they're giving us so we can pick up on them a bit more. And I say that sounding like I know what I'm talking about, but the thing is, is one of the hardest lessons, the hardest realities that I've learned working in the mental health space, mental illness, suicide space, is that you can't help everyone, and that's really confronting. Some people can't be helped and that's really a confronting thing like when you want to try and help everybody everyone can't be helped and that's a really confronting um, thing to be able to kind of process because um, all you want to do is help people and some people you know the suicide rate still tells us that there's so much work to do and even though some of those people might come to an event like mine or a speaking engagement like mine still might not help them and that's really challenging so you know that conversation piece and that awareness and education is really important um, to try and work out how do we be more vigilant and more pick out the signs a lot more easier and how do we pick up those subtle things in conversation particularly blokes are having in rural communities how do we how do we pick up on those things and how do we yeah, so we can try and make inroads on the, on the suicide rate, particularly in rural communities. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's so many, so much to unpack kind of in yeah. what you've said, but I think that like, whether it's the, the little things of, yeah, noticing of when people are turning up to footy training, when are they reaching out or calling, et cetera, if those things start to dissipate, like, I guess that starts within your friendship group. Um. One question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which I'm keen to ask you, and 
I think you probably talked to lots of adults, but I think you do also do a few different um, school speaking gigs. Yep. I think what I'd love to know is if you got the chance to go and talk to year 10 students about why agriculture could be a career that they should consider. Um, what, yeah, kind of what would you say to them? Oh, it's just the diversity of it. Like, um, you know, and I speak as, as a, having a 30 odd five year career in dairy farming, it was so you're learning something every day. And like the last farm, particularly that I, that I was a shift supervisor slash manager on was a 3000 cow farm. And every day something different. And it was so uh, like, you know, you, well, they say you need to do something that gets you out of bed every morning. It definitely gets you out of bed every morning. But um, it was something that I just, I just had a passion for it, you know. And I say back in the day when I first started or when we first moved from Melbourne, all those first experiences on a, on a farm was all about motorbikes, tractors and, and slug guns. Well, never owned a gun past that slug gun. Um, I hate, I hate fixing motors and tractors and small engines, but I've developed this passion for, um, for cows and being able to, well, yeah, which should kind of develop from there, but turning green stuff into white stuff, it was a real passion. And, and I did a talk at the women in dairy conference up at Port Macquarie last year. And I met some young girls that were working on farms and none of them come from farming backgrounds, but their passion for, for what they were doing and, and just learning because there's so much you can learn. Like there's so many skills and, and those you don't agriculture can teach you skills that you can then transport into other parts of your life and then into other careers. If, agriculture isn't something that isn't lifelong for you it just it teaches you so much um and it and it and it teaches you um independence and and like so many skills you know resilience and problem solving and you know all these things that you just don't realize why you're doing it but at the end of the day when you look back you think geez it taught me a lot of stuff that i now use in my everyday life and it's something like and ironically <laughs> my son my second eldest son um who's a cabinet maker for for 10 years is now in his second year of his ag degree he left cabinet making and wanted to be a dairy farmer um, and wanted to do an ag degree so he's doing his ag degree and my daughter is just left year done year 12 she's now working on a dairy farm as well it's just there's there's something about it um dairy farming particularly there's something about it and if you if you're into it you're into it but like it, I, I think don't ever be perturbed it teaches you like work ethic and all these sort of things that all the all the good things it's really hard to put into words but it's something I, I I encourage anyone to pursue particularly you know if you can get a like a degree behind you you can do anything you can anything from milk and cows to being a agribusiness manager at a bank you know getting that education which you know I didn't have but I've got 35 years of experience that I can you know, shared wisdom is that, you know, powerful thing in community. I can share some wisdom that I learned along the way, but I was always learning stuff every day. Like I seen stuff at that big dairy farm that I'd never seen in my whole life, but it was just because it was so big and so, you know, 3,000 cows, you're going to, you're bound to seeing something different every day. So it was just that dynamic part of being in agriculture. And it's like doing what I do now. It's so interesting to watch 
you know, how the agronomy, how the team works together, the agronomy team and the, you know, the harvest team and the field staff and how we all work together to get a crop into the factory at the end of the year. And, um, you know, there's obviously there's the, the trials and tribulations that come along, but agriculture is just a great career to be in. And I would, and people ask me that same question or similar question, you know, would you change anything? I'd never change anything, regardless of my journey. And, the, you know, it's my person I am today, but I would never, never change anything about my, my agricultural journey. And that's one of the reasons why I could have gone and got a job in a shop or something when COVID hit, but I decided to go back to agriculture because just love it so much. Yeah, it's definitely a special industry to be part of. And I love that your kids are coming to it as well. That's good. Yeah. Well, Warren, thank you so much for joining us and having a chat on the Humans Bag podcast. I think the, there's lots of elements of your story, which is pretty confronting, but um, thank you so much for sharing it. And I think for us, like we, we're really passionate about I guess, healthy people, happy people, healthy and happy communities across um, rural, regional Australia and people more broadly who are involved in agriculture as well. And I think for us, yeah, if anyone is struggling, there is help out there and whether that's reaching out to a friend and just having a chat or if you're needing help, likes of Lifeline, 13, 11, 14, um, TX Foundation. I know those guys are doing incredible work for blue collar workers. there is help out there and i think yeah thank you so much for coming and joining us today and sharing part of your story and people want to find out more they can head over to your website and hopefully a bunch of our guests uh, a bunch of our listeners actually get to see you speak at some stage it's been a real privilege thank you for having me on and um you know you keep up the good work yourself mate you're doing a great great thing and and shining that light on agriculture which is really important and 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 particularly you know the humans in agriculture because that's something that sometimes gets overlooked that you know there's really some great people you know i'm lucky enough i get to travel around australia and meet some great people in rural and you know farming communities and that there's so many good people so many great stories out there so keep up the good work yourself mate cheers for having me on well if you made it this far thank you for listening to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I think what stuck out, still, I think what stood out for me was how in those earlier years, Warren's sense of purpose was really tied to the farm and, and factors that he didn't actually have control over. If this chat has prompted anything for you or risen anything, please know that there is help. You can reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or our good friends over at Trademark have established that this is a conversation starter helpline and it is a cracker. So. If you need to, reach out. It's 04 468 Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll chat to you next week.